This evening, uh, I'm gonna, I've started a series in the book of Ephesians, and last time we just looked at the very beginning of chapter one. Um, but tonight, uh, we're going to be looking at chapter one again. But before we start, um, I wanted to get us thinking about this. This is a string for an instrument, and it was made like this um, on its own. However, for this string to do what it was made for, for it to function as it was made for, it needs to be attached to something bigger than itself. And when it's attached, it can do what it was meant to do. Well tuned, Joel. <laughs> um, when it's like this, it doesn't matter what I do, I can't make it make the sound that it can make when it's attached to this. However, when it is attached on here, it is limited. It's limited to where it is, and it's put in tension. And now when we think about ourselves, often, when we're attached to someone else, it can feel a bit like this. It can put us in a place where we feel limited, where perhaps we're put under tension and it can be difficult. And often we don't want to be attached to other people and we avoid it because we don't want to be limited. And tonight I want to look particularly at an attachment that we can have, our attachment to Christ. What is it to be attached? To Christ, to be in Christ. And like I said, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, which is written to Christians, who we are in Christ. And it's good to remind ourselves of who we are, why and what we're in Christ for. But don't worry if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Because I think if you're here, you probably want to find out a bit about who we are and uh, maybe want to know, is this something you'd want to be a part of? And if so, it's uh, appropriate. We're going to talk about who we are in Christ. And there is an invitation for all of us to join in and to be tied in. But why is it that we would limit ourselves? And we're going to look a little bit at the good things, the things that come from being attached. Because when we're attached to a person, so uh, if I was talking to my kids, they might feel limited by teachers. But actually, teachers enable them to live their life more fully, to develop their skills and their giftings. Parents, I'm sure everyone at some point has felt limited by someone in their lives. And kids particularly feel limited by their adults. But adults, the adults in their lives make all the difference to how a kid develops. And we're going to look a bit at what that is in Christ. We might be limited, but what is it? Why is it worth it? Why are so many of us here chosen to be in Christ? And Chloe's going to come and read the passage for us and have a look and notice how many times it mentions in Christ. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would show us what it is you want to say to each one of us tonight, whether that be a challenge or an encouragement or both. Would you speak to us? Amen. So, as we look at this passage about being in Christ, I want to just take a little detour as we start and have a little look at what has been the church's response to this passage historically. Some of you who have been around the church for a long time might have noticed a word in there Uh, that has caused controversy, and I imagine some of you have had long discussions about it, and part of training, uh, the ongoing training that I have uh, to be be a Baptist minister is that I had to do a module on Baptist history and principles, and I imagine what I felt when I found that out is similar to what you've all just thought um, just then for the majority of you, apart from a few history... um, I'm not going to say geeks, but <laughs> but actually, it was absolutely fascinating uh, when I went to this module, and I was surprised uh, by how much there was that was actually fascinating about who we are now because of what's happened in the past. And history is so important to know about in order to understand who we are now, but also to understand some of the mistakes we've made in the past, maybe some of the things where we maybe spent longer on one thing than we should have done, or maybe talked about things in an unhelpful way. And so I'm just going to take you on a very quick whistle-stop tour um, through uh, the Baptist history with this word, predestination, because this word, predestination, in the passage has caused a lot of arguments. And... It's caused arguments amongst Baptists in the UK um, specifically. And I want to show you what happened and how they got through this and how actually what we're going to look at tonight 
is something completely different because actually that's not the focus of this passage. But I thought we should look at this because I think it's a distracting uh, little uh, word in there that sometimes causes some problems. So in the 17th century, there was a group of radicals emerged in the UK and amongst those were the Baptists. And these were people who said, actually, what is it to be the church? What is it to be part of the church? It is more than just being born as a person in the UK under the king. That doesn't make me part of the church. And being baptized when I'm born, that also doesn't make me part of the church. It's more than that. There's more to being a Christian than just that. However, at that time, because the main church in the UK was under the king and the church was controlled by them, the, the dominant church, these radicals put themselves at a lot of risk. It was very risky to do anything different. And the Baptists did something which was very risky. And I'm told that if you're interested in this group, if you go to Tewkesbury, there's a Baptist chapel there from around this time. And there, the baptistry, which if you were here last week, you'll know that under here we have a baptistry. It's like a little pool under here. And uh, in Tewkesbury, it's even more hidden than this. It's in the middle of the floor, and it's completely hidden because that little group of radicals, they decided, actually, we are going to baptize full immersion adults that decide for themselves that they want to follow Jesus. And they did this at risk of their own lives. And so the baptistry is hidden in the middle of the floor so that they couldn't be found out um, unless someone walked in straight away. Um, and so in the 17th century, these radicals appeared and the Baptists began in the UK. Now fast forward to the 18th century and this group started to have arguments, like with most humans, but they started to have arguments and uh, one uh, writer that I read uh, that was writing about the 18th century said the religious history of the Baptists in the 18th century, and especially of the earlier half of it, is the reverse of inspiring. Now, when I was writing my essay on the 18th century of Baptists, that didn't fill me with hope for the, uh, <laughs> how that essay was going to be interesting to me. However, the reason he wrote that is because it was full of arguments, of fragmentation, of people falling out with each other. And that was why it was uninspiring. And the main thing that they argued over, if you look at how they split there, there were two main groups. And it was over this word, predestination. One side said, God chooses who will be saved. And there's nothing else but that. God chooses who will be saved. On the other side, they said, well, no, each one of us gets a choice. We choose whether we follow Jesus. It's not God. Now, it's far more complicated than that. But at this point, these two sides would not listen to each other. They wouldn't discuss it. They fell out with each other, and they became two different sets of Baptist churches. And they wouldn't work together over this controversial word in this passage. However, as the 
century went on, a couple of, well, three things happened to these people who had fallen out. And they'd started becoming less in number, and they were sort of dwindling. And then suddenly, three things happened. First, they began to pray. There was a man called John Sutcliffe, and he called everyone to pray at the same time each month. And he said, I don't mind whether you're from this Baptist, that Baptist, if you're not a Baptist at all. We need to pray that God would move. And he called people to join together praying each month at the same time. And people started to cooperate a little bit more across the two sides. They weren't together, but they started to say, actually, yeah, we all want to pray. And then not long after this came the evangelical revival in the UK. If you know anything about Methodists, about John Wesley, um, and all that went on there, God's Spirit moved and transformed all whole communities in our country. And it affected the Baptists as well. And it affected both sides of the Baptists. And what happened was God put in them this desire that actually we want to tell people that Jesus saves, that there's a whole new life to be had if you follow Jesus. This is good news. And we want to tell people about it. And we should tell people about it. And so this began to happen, and actually the two sides of the Baptists started to say, actually, should we work together in this? This is more important. Over how we decide how it happens, we both agree we need to tell people about Jesus. And out of that then came mission, and the Baptist Missionary Society was founded by one of the sides, but when it was founded by William Carey, he said, actually, I want all Baptists to be a part of this. And that was the beginning of them working together, looking outwards uh, to the world, initially to India, and then further afield. And so, as the 18th century went on, it started in splits, in divisions, and we see it around our world still, and yet they came back together, united by seeing that actually more important than some little argument over a word is the fact that it is transformational to our lives to be in Christ. And we all agree on that, and we want to let people know about that, and we all feel that we should let people know about that. Which brings us on to the 19th century, when the Baptist Union was formed, and both groups ended up uniting within the Baptist Union in the end. And we're still in the Baptist Union. We are part of the Baptist Union today. They do all kinds of stuff uh, for us, and we are a part um, of the Baptist Union. And they decided to overcome these differences for something more important, something larger, and come together. So why am I giving you this history lesson? It's all to say that, yes, there are and have been different interpretations of what predestination means for a long, long time. And it's good to discuss these things in love and whilst keeping the main thing, the main thing, that Jesus came to save and that we are to spread that good news. But there's also these more central things that we're talking about that Jesus died on the cross, that he came to save. Predestination isn't the central issue. And the way Donald sometimes puts it is that there are 
main road issues, and there are, uh, uh, what do you call it, pavement issues. I couldn't think of the word pavement. And the pavement issues, sometimes we have to leave because the main road is what we want to concentrate on, and that's what we want to unite around. And anyhow, we're not going to be looking at this because I agree with John Stott, who says, it is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best brains in Christendom for centuries. And it's definitely not going to be done by, by, by my brain. And so what we're going to do tonight, we're not going to wade into arguments. And I don't actually think this passage is about this anyhow. And people on both sides of the argument all agree that this passage is actually about those who are in Christ and what it is to be in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at. What is it? to be the church. And as we look at this passage, all the orange little marks where it says, in Christ, that is what we're going to look at. And so what does it mean to be in Christ? It's talking about people who are connected intimately with him. Actively participating in not even just people who say the right things, who tick the right boxes. It's more than that. These are those in the church, the body of Christ. If we're the body, my body is actively connected with the head. It's not a, something that is not active. There is blood pumping through. There are all kinds of connections. It's an active connection. We are in him. And so that is what it is to be the church. But let's look a little bit more at the passage and about what it is to be those in Christ. And we're going to look at three questions, a little bit longer on the first one. Um, so what has God given us? Why has he given us all this? And what has to be our response? And so firstly, what has God given us? And we're just going to go through the passage. I'm literally just going to list it. And when we look at our world, and we, you know, we started off the service thinking about all that's going on around the world and the bad news, sometimes it's good to remind ourselves of some good news. And this is what I want to do tonight. What is it to be in Christ? What has he given us? And there's some complicated words as we go through this. And if you want to know more and you feel like, oh, Deb's not explaining it enough, come along to Alpha on a Wednesday night. Come along to Living the Life if you're already a Christian but you want to know a bit more about some of these issues. Come ask Donald about predestination. He'd love that. <laughs> but do come along. Ask questions. It's great to ask questions. What that's not our focus tonight isn't all the nitty-gritty. We're going to look at all the things that we've been blessed with. Some of them you'll understand more than others, and that's absolutely fine. And so first of all, he gives us every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on. He chose us. He actually actively wants us. He's not indifferent. He's not an indifferent God. He chose us. He wants us. And then he says and that for us to be holy and blameless in his sight, he allowed us, despite our mess-ups, despite the things that we do wrong, he allowed us to be without fault in his eyes. He made that possible. And then says that he adopts us as his children. 
into his own family. We have the rights of children to God. And it's freely given. Just a little side note that all this stuff that we're going to list now, it's freely given. It's not with strings attached. He did it. He's given it to us. He paid the cost himself on the cross. These gifts are free to us, but they are not in lacking in value. They are so, so valuable and life-changing. Redemption, which means he paid for our freedom. He paid the cost with his own life. And the forgiveness of sins, all that we've done wrong or where we failed to do what we should, the mess that we've made, forgiven. Grace that he lavished on us. He showered his kindness on us. It's not just by halves. He doesn't do things by halves. He showered it on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he communicates with us with all wisdom and understanding. He's not like some person in our lives who maybe sometimes says things that are quite good, other times slightly miss the point, don't say thing, the right thing. He communicates with all wisdom and understanding. And he brings salvation. He gives it to us. And another little side note, we couldn't have saved ourselves. Our mess means we were headed for death. That was the just and the right consequence of our actions. None of us has been perfect, but he saves us. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us and as a deposit which he says will be our inheritance. The whole cosmos that he created, made new, without the rubbish and the pain and the wars and the mess and the injustice and the illnesses, that is our inheritance. And so, what has God given us? He's given us his plentiful provision. And the next question, why has he given us all this? Why would he do that? Look at what humanity has done. We don't deserve all of this. Why has he done this? And we go back to the passage. He did it because he is a loving God. He did it in love, but also because it great, gave him great pleasure. He wanted to do this for us. He loves us, and it gives him pleasure. And also, it says, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's not just about us. It's also for the sake of the whole of creation, the whole cosmos. We're saved, but this is all about something far bigger than us. This is about God's much larger purpose that he wants to accomplish 
through us. So why has he given us all this? For his pleasure and purpose. And it's one which he takes great pleasure in including us in. He has this purpose, but he wants to use us in accomplishing it. He wants us involved, tied in, working with him. And then the last question. What has to be our response? So often our response as the church to this passage has been to have an argument. And yet it's totally illogical when you look at this passage. You look at this passage and you look at all the things that he's showered on us. And you look at all that there is if we're in Christ. And you look at the purpose that he has for the whole of our creation. And you think, and we're going to look at all that. And our response is to have an argument over one word. So what should our response be? And what I want you to imagine is, imagine you're discovering that you suddenly come into an inheritance. It's totally for free. You actually probably didn't even expect it with all sorts of bonuses and add-ons included that meant that you are sorted for life. In this case, actually for eternity. And it's guaranteed. It would be amazing. And it would transform your life. Any one of us, if we came into that kind of inheritance. There would be responsibility, probably but also great joy in receiving such a gift. And Tom Wright says about this, discovering you are to receive an inheritance like that should change your whole life. How can you not join in the hymn of praise? And that is what Paul encourages us to do in response to this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. For the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. So what has to be our response? To praise him. Which we'll do in a moment together. But also, why not set aside a bit of time this week to write a list like Paul has of all the things that you can think of that God has done for you and for us and for our world that cause us to praise him. And if you can't think where to get started, go to Ephesians 1 and start reading and start writing down. Remind yourself of some of the things that he has done for us regardless of what is going on in our lives, the things that are done, that he's promised. Or, as we think about being in Christ, coming back to the beginning, who are we in Christ? Maybe, 
you could decide to meet with some friends this week. And when we invariably start talking about things to moan about, the difficult things, why not change the topic? Don't do it in an annoying way. Don't be an irritating person. Don't be that irritating, uh, always jolly person. But why not bring in, in the conversation at some point, you know what's been really good this week? Have you heard that good news story? It's good to mourn and lament, but let's also be people that praise and give thanks. So coming back to the beginning, who are we in Christ? We are an incredibly blessed people. Why would we limit ourselves to being in Christ, to being tied in? Because why would we forego all those blessings that we just looked at? Would we rather be free but tuneless? The strings come separate, but they're designed to be connected to something bigger than themselves, to operate in the way that they were made to. Might feel limiting, but actually it's liberating. We're designed to be connected, and that's what liberates us to be what we were designed to be. And actually, this part, I'm told, I'm not a musician, as you can tell, this part of the instrument is the headstock, the head, Christ. And this part is the body. We are the body, his church. And often, there is tension we feel that tension, being part of the body, with other people. And we don't want that, and we want to get out. But actually, it's in this tension that you discover the note that God created you to make. Without being attached, we won't discover that. But it takes being a part of his body with others, and attached to him, the head. And in that, we experience his abundant blessings, his forgiveness, his salvation, his purpose, his hope, and his love for us. So as uh, we come into worship, we often don't like to be told what note to sing, so to speak, in our lives. We don't like to be told what to do. It feels limiting. But if we allow him to tune us, him, the head, he will make us each sing the tune we were made for, and we will be a part of a beautiful harmony, singing together something far bigger than just ourselves. And we join that. We join those other people in him. If we join other people in anything else, if it's something else that draws us together, not him, it will be temporary. It will be fragile. The only thing that can join us in something eternal, in something eternally meaningful, is if we're joined 
in him. He's the one that can tie us into him and tie us into his people. If not in him, then it will be temporary and fragile. So let's celebrate who we are in him. And if you feel you aren't in Christ, the offer is there, whoever you are, whatever your background, come to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him.